any designer, I believe, is trying to do, is to look into a problem and pull out an opportunity for something. I think that's the kernel of the creative act. And you're building a huge kind of foundation of advocacy for what might be the ultimate design. One's journey to the poetry is through the pragmatics. Hi, welcome to The Common Creative. I'm Paul Fairweather. And I'm Chris Meredith. And this week's special guest is an old friend of mine, architect and urban designer, Peter Edwards from Archipelago. Peter is a visionary in Australia's design and he is passionate about the city making and creating the city of our dreams. And what struck me about his approach is it's all about bottom-up, ground-up urbanism was a phrase he used. Um, He talked about... um, when an idea starts words, you build a foundation of advocacy amongst the different people that are involved in it so that you get different team members using your language and, and effectively incorporating the core ideas into their own language. Um, a very powerful and clever way of getting people to come together. Yep, and also Chris, I, his insight and explanation of unpacking the creative process in, in designing in a collaborative environment which he described as pragmatic steps before you can get to the poetry. Let's get on the line the very erudite and eloquent Peter Edwards. And if you if you like Bondi Beach, stay to the end because he describes the way Bondi builds a city every day. Welcome Peter Edwards to The Common Creative. Oh, hi guys, it's great to be here. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a massive fan, I love your work. <laughs> Peter, I know, I know you already know Paul. It's great to meet you and welcome to the show. Thanks Chris, an absolute pleasure to see you. <laughs> so Peter, uh, you're, a, you're a good friend of mine, collaborator, uh, I think we're both clients of each other, um, but you are the ultimate multi-potentialite, um, you're, you're good at almost everything. If you could just give us a bit of a potted history about uh, how you got to where you sure, are. Sure, sure. I'm a, um, I'm a uh, true born and bred Brisbane boy, um, trained at you know, QUT and educated at University of Queensland, grew up in the leafy suburbs of western brisbane playing amidst the remnant bushlands and and the uh estates of uh half-built timber and brick um you know houses that were busily sprawling their way through the western suburbs um enjoyed very much um a, a, a close group of friends and a close connection with this city was of course did did what a lot of young people do and travelled abroad. And I lived in Southeast Asia and worked there for three years, and and uh, was upon my return able to join a pretty uh, a sequence of very important roles with large multidisciplinary design firms, and where I got to spend a lot of time with a lot of people who who uh, whose time I really didn't deserve, uh, but were able to um, um, were very formative in my uh, architectural career and. I attribute a lot of what I know now to the time I was able to spend with them. Mm. And when did you form Archipelago? Well, what I did was I waited until the, the absolute best um, moment in the economic cycles, um, which was to <laughs> wait until the world had completely fallen apart um, and to leave my cushy job in the big multidisciplinary firm and, and start a small practice on or about the beginning of the GFC. Um, which was uh, actually looking back um, a tremendous um, thing to do because we were, you know, a bunch of keen young um, 
design-oriented professionals who had nothing to lose, um, sitting uh, around some tables with piles of manila folders and tracing papers around us, and, and it was really um, it was really only one way we could go, which was um, which was to uh, build a practice and 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 do some great projects. Peter, if I'm right, Archipelago is is all about mul- being multidisciplinary, and the fact the word archipelago is a metaphor for kind of bringing together di- different disciplines. If I if I've understood it right. If that's true, why go that way in building a practice? What I'm thinking is that there's obviously upsides to being multidisciplinary, but it doesn't have to make life hard because you can get very many different points of view in how to make a great project. Mm, no, that's very true. I, 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 I think it's um, a little bit of a side effect of the genealogy of the roles I was able to snare for myself in the profession but I've always worked in big multidisciplinary practices in fact Malcolm Middleton the, the former state government architect gave me my first job in the late 80s uh, and, and in a company that had architects landscape architects planners interior designers and uh, uh, even graphic designers and uh, and that was the great kind of baptism was to see that there were many disciplines that needed to come together to make a contribution when you're making important projects or shaping a city. I mean, it's the city, it, it, we're, we're an, uh, weird as a kind of design practice because we're very focused on city making and urbanism. Um, we, we do make a promise to ourselves of cities, buildings and things. We, we, we work through the scales and we have, um, we're able to point to, you know, um, creating a, 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 a entire cities, strategies for entire cities. Um, which we've been lucky enough to do. We've, we've also designed and built buildings, but we, we actually have created, um, you know, commissions for furniture and uh, major uh, artworks as well. So we're, we're, we work through the scales a lot. But, the, but what's common with all of those endeavours is that they only benefit from having more minds come to the problem. And all we're trying to do, all any designer I believe is trying to do, is to look into a problem and pull out an opportunity, an opportunity for something um, profound. And, and I think that's the kernel of the creative act. And is there a secret for getting these disparate experts to collaborate? Because uh, I can imagine, that, that of course, there's beauty yeah. in getting these different people together, but there's this ugliness of, you know, you're right, you're, you're wrong and I'm right going on as well. How do you get people yeah. like that to collaborate? Yeah. Well, I think any any architect will tell you that that, um, that, that that's that, that's the nub of nub of the opportunity is to actually get people <laughs> to fall in love, actually get people to to claim your idea as their idea and start using your language in a meeting to talk about how profoundly good this thing is to do. So let's spend hundreds of millions of dollars making it happen of other people's money. Um, you know, uh, uh, any the irony is, I think uh, a lot of architects. Um, some architects might have an idea that, that, that they are some kind of creative genius that they will they will operate in an ivory tower and and throw their drawings out the window to flutter down for the, that the masses could scurry around them and race off to 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 build them um, in the, with gilded bricks. I, I don't. That's just absolutely not what it's like. And uh, and and the idea that you might be working very hard on cr- creative processes to bring together disparate disciplines is. Um, if you step back, you're too close to the problem, I'd suggest, Chris. If you step back, you'll realise you need to use a whole bunch of processes to bring together a whole bunch of disparate stakeholders um, who, who are um, um, extreme, extremely sceptical of, of, uh, of what you might be thinking about. 
and uh, and use techniques to actually um, allow people to connect with what a solution might look like. So we use an ideas-led strategic design methodology, and that means that we uh, are um, we love problems because when you have problems, you've got something to work with, and we work very hard to break problems down to um, primary issues and then develop design strategies in response to those primary issues. And yes, in the back of our mind, we have big ideas that we're, we're hoping to work our way towards, but we don't start with a vision and then try and post-justify it. We're, so this is um, the lessons from architects like Ken Ma, um, uh, uh, who will say, we're not about creating form, we're about finding form. So we're about this process of distilling careful design strategies, assembling those into a unifying idea and, and especially taking our stakeholders and our disciplines and our teams along for that journey so that by the time you're, you're, you're moving into the realisation of these ideas, you're sitting in meetings and the project manager who was ready to throttle you in the first meeting <laughs> is actually sitting beside you, um, almost patting the back of your hand, using your language to talk about yes. the idea like it was that person's idea, his, his or her idea. And... That's when you really know that the design process, the creative process, has borne some fruit. That you're not, you're not just, um, uh, you're not just getting one idea across for one project, but you're actually affecting a way of thinking for many others who are actually in the process and in the place of building cities. They start to speak your language. They start to take your ideas to the next project. And um, it's really lovely to see, and I've, I've been lucky enough, and, um, and well, perhaps I'm just old enough, to have seen that um, happen a number of times on a number of really large-scale projects. Peter, I, I love your, your description of the process there of a true uh, collaboration, as opposed to having to resort to what I call collaboration, uh, <laughs> of um, just do it this way. Um, Peter, this is a, a question without notice. Mm. as they all are, but we've just, Chris and I have just come off an interview with a neuroscientist from the States who specialises in the aha eureka moment. And in this conversation, mm. he, he saw that there were sort of two types of ways to solve problems. One was the eureka moment where it just sort of pops into your head. And the other is a very practical mm. process that you sort of talk about, about iterating an idea. And he says it's possible that sometimes whilst you're doing that, you can also have the eureka moment. I'm just interested because, you know, Chris and I have just come off that conversation uh, and this will bookend his interview. Do you, sure. do you, have, do you have these uh, eureka, aha insights, uh, you know, either in the shower or during the process? And what happens when other people have them in the process? I think um, I'd like to have the and conversation about that, Paul. <laughs> and? And then, and so it, it, it's it's lots of careful research analysis, um, distillation, uh, um, strategy, um, carefully building up um, arguments for things, and it's it's partly a eureka moment. It's not an either or, in my opinion. I don't think you can get for something as complex as a, as a major building or a piece of a city or something like that. It's very hard to come in and be a poet. You know, you, you have to come in and be a pragmatist. And uh, and one's journey to the poetry is through the pragmatics. And I used to have this argument a lot um, with some of my colleagues. No, not argument, discussion. A discussion a lot, especially with Rodney Uren, who was a great, the late Rodney Uren, a great architect who worked um, in the company that I used to work at, who was an, an ex-design uh, director from one of the 
um, world's most starry architects offices you could imagine <laughs> um, who designed it was an industrial designer by training and um, was responsible for such projects as the Bilbao Metro and he would talk very much about this kind of strategic project and strategic project and I said yes I yes I understand all of that but at some point and I've seen him do it on so many occasions you have to reach in through the manure and pull out the pearl that's the eureka moment the eureka moment is amidst amidst all of that research and all of those careful strategies the eureka moment and this this is the creative act is being able to look at all of that and see the the golden thread that needs to be pulled to pull all of those things together into a unifying and compelling idea that will carry the day and that's that so it is i i suggest a sort of synthesis between the, the science of, of um, strategy and analysis and that creative act, the aha moment of, of being able to look at all of that that's before you and see and see the pearl, see the, the moment that needs to be kind of pulled out of all of that. It reminds me, I used to work in brand marketing roles on the client side where we'd be commissioning new advertising campaigns and so on. And I, I can see a strong link from that. You'd, you'd brief an agency to come up with some new communications idea. They would start, their start point would be, here's the idea. This is how we're going to get into the heads of your mm. consumers. And the, the, the tension was always, as a client, you'd be going, yeah, that's great, but I've got to see my pack there very big. And you, you've got to explain that it lasts twice as long as something else. And it's sort of, and you find yourself without, without wanting to, chiseling away at the idea. Um, and that was always the tension. Where do you, how do you preserve the core idea whilst selling the product that you're trying to sell? And I, I, I wonder if you've had experience of that mm. and how you navigate those tensions, practically the cost, you know, the, the floor space, the, all of those things that must go into yeah. good design. I, I think it's, uh, yeah, I think it's, I think it's a bit different. Um, different creative disciplines have different responsibilities. I mean, if a marketing, if a marketing campaign falls apart it doesn't kill hundreds of people that's true but if a building falls <laughs> apart it certainly does so uh, so the, 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 there's complexity different levels of complexity involved in both things i would still um and i, and I have seen architects and worked with architects who work that way that will you know you walk into the room and they'll pull the cover off the off the model and they'll, they'll just there's an aha moment they'll say ta-da this is absolutely the idea with all of the answers and then proceed to try and unpack it and justify it and establish it and that's completely the wrong way to do it you, you just need to start with this simple idea of by talking to you and the research that we've done we understand these problems you have a problem that that you know you, you you've you have a problem where you need to try and bring people together in in a in a, in a community space um, and, and you know you that you need to make something attractive it needs to be ostensibly sustainable um, and there's a whole bunch of kind of challenges that they've set for you and you'd say and the way that you know our response to this is that we need to have a thing that is you know inside of our dna is a common thing that we all want to gather around it has to be sustainable so it's got to be solar you know sequester carbon and be solar powered and ostensibly renewable and self-healing and it's like you know and the answer might you might have a metaphor of a tree which mm -hmm. and you might but you, you don't come to the tree first and then understand it but you you say all of these strategies point to a thing and our idea is to use this idea of the tree uh, um, as a as a design motif that we will then design a building around and we'll show you how that all works in a, in a particular building strategy 
but the point is to actually identify and frame the problems or challenges. We, and, and our attitude is, um, you know, we like to quickly reframe challenges as opportunities uh, because a lot of people can get fixated on problems without, without looking at them like they are opportunities. Um, and that's, that's a creative act in itself is to be able to kind of shift the frame of reference to start to look as uh, look at problems as as things that um, are, are are your medium for good, um, and and so I think I, I'm a, I'm a very staunch believer in that in that process of very carefully building up um, a, a design idea, your first principles by um, creating you know because when you if you have a particular problem and you um, and you, and someone says to you well the problem we have is is this you know the problem I have is that I, I um, you know I'm building in a harsh environment and I I um, you know every when I look at all the buildings around me they're all falling apart because I'm in a coastal environment and and you, if you take that one issue when you say well, what's very important is that we provide very generous eaves on your building to protect use the roof to protect the building to triple its life and if you say that in its in its single in a, as a single strategy, it's totally compelling. All the heads are nodding. Oh, of course, that's the right thing to do. Yeah, it's very sensible, wonderful. And you do that with the next strategy, and the next strategy, and the next strategy, and you're building a huge kind of foundation of advocacy for what might be the ultimate design. And and but you're right, you'd be stitching together those strategies, and the creative the aha moment, the creative act comes from this idea of aha. We're going to reinterpret. The, uh, the bushman's hat and provide a, a folding um, folly of, uh, of timber and tin to gather everybody together and at once protect the building and provide us a, a singular motif for this thing to be seen at a distance and replay the distant mountains in the urban form that we create. A whole bunch of things might fall out of that. But that's an example where you're carefully building your way to the design idea, but, but establishing a kind of concrete foundation of advocacy as you move through it. Um, and it's, it's, it's much, there's much less risk and liability using that process than um just coming in with coming in with a an idea that's come to you in the evening it will uh, it will have a much higher risk of failing peter i have i have a, a two-part question from the from the micro to the macro one is you know i you're talking about this pragmatic process to lead to the poetry and and, and how to approach this stuff but i know that you are an incredibly creative person um I'm just interested in, in you know, and I know you know we've we've done some things together around some watercolor and yeah. stuff, but you know your your sense of self-expression in this you know incre incredibly pragmatic process and collaborative environment. You know, how how do you how do you get your jo creative jollies um, in, in that process? <laughs> <laughs> it's in, it's interesting. I, it's, I think architecture, if architecture was taken to the international court one day it would it would certainly um one have to answer for kidnapping from the world a vast population of creatives who get sucked out of out of society and into this profession and uh, i ha i know many architects who are polymaths i know many architects who are musicians and artists um who are who write beautifully uh, poets um, who are good at many things, um, and I, I've been lucky enough to be mentored um, by some of them, um, introduced to the fine arts of fly fishing, um, inspired by um, painting, um, being able to pick up a guitar and, and um, not entirely be accused of molesting it. Um, you know, all sorts of things like that 
um, are, are wonderful things. And, and in architecture are many, many um, creative people who are very good at a lot of things. And I think, um, and that would be the same, not just for architecture, that would be the same, of course, for many um, creative pursuits. That, that, that And so, I think you're onto something, Paul. There's something at the kernel of all of this, which is this kind of, um, this creative burn, it's this sort of little fire inside you that's just simply, at its, at its most fundamental, I had a bad habit, which I'm trying to be better at, um, when I would arrive in a room and immediately be unsatisfied with the arrangement of the furniture. And, and I would have to just, and, and would anyone mind if I, and, I'm, and without explaining myself, I'd just shift the client's furniture around the place. And say, That's much better. Let's sit down and have this meeting. Isn't that more relaxed? Isn't that lovely? And, uh, and um, yes, sometimes that would be seen as being impolite um, and, and sometimes I care about that and I don't. But the, but the, but the, the idea, I think, of simply looking at the world and seeing an underlying beauty that 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 um, has attracted you that you would like to somehow engage with more so we try and write a song about it or or capture it in paint or any one of these kind of um, you know attempts for a human being to nail you know it's almost like um, the lesson from Peter Pan and nailing one's shadow down is is a, is a thing that's extremely difficult um, but I think that that there's both both a relationship with being able to look with a set of eyes at the world and see things that others can't see, either a potential or an innate beauty or a or a fascination that you might have, and then uh, intrigue yourself with with a, a way of engaging with that. So I, I might want to paint that, or I might want to write a poem about that, or I might want to um, cre create a uh, take a photograph and, and do something exciting with it. Uh, what, what, whatever is your particular creative um, um, avenue, but I would suggest that there's many, many creatives in the world who are just as happy to pick up a paintbrush as they are to pick up a pen, as they are to pick up an instrument, as they are to um, capture everything with some wonderful interpretive dance. So I, I wanted, I wanted to take the the dance to the next step, which is which is the which is the the macro. And, and whilst you are, you know, multi-talented at many things, including watercolour, um, as I said to you, you know, you're not supposed to be better than the instructor, uh, i.e. me. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but basically, uh, you know, your, your chosen canvas is the city. And whilst you do, you know, components from that or right down to buildings or furniture, I know that that's where your passion lies. And you have been, um, mm. you know, privileged or had the honour to, to, you know, uh, do projects that you know, are a large scale, not a whole city, but certainly city centres or parts of the city. Um, how do you reconcile in yourself? Um, I was just looking the other day some photos from Paris when they went through and bulldozed, you know, whole mm. suburbs to create the avenues. Um, mm. You know, if you tried to do that mm. today, there'd be a hue and cry. Mm. But, you know, I, mm. I often look at the city, I'm sure you must, you talked before about, you know, when you're looking through that lens of what you see, is, you know, it'd be, it'd be fantastic to to start again or, you know, erase a whole lot of what we've done. Um, <laughs> how, how do you process that when you look at, at this, you know, sometimes cacophony that we've ended up with and you just want to yeah. fix it, but you, you know you can't, you know, right there and yeah. then. So, well, I don't, I, don't think, I don't think in any one of the cities in history that they got together with a design charrette in Barcelona uh, way back when and said, let's burn half the city down as a design strategy. Uh, I, you know, I, I think that, I think that um, yes, there's certainly been, you know, if you think about, you've got to be careful here because 
we, we start moving towards um you know the the this space where um uh you know the cities are the manifestation of people as they come together i think is where they're where they're best now that now um if we um, look at some of the great moments of of fascist city making on the eu and um, rome's an example where you know, i think it was Mussolini who raced out and kind of decided we'd build a utopian city and i've got to say walking through that thing i absolutely love it you know all these buildings are on axis right down to the door of the museum and in the distance that's captured by the palisade of columns that's 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 marked by the center line of the street that's kind of, you know, it just has this kind of formalism which i find intoxicating because it's often often in cities made by happenstance is certainly brisbane's one of those uh, where where um, donkey trails turn into streets, turn into highways, <laughs> and there's there's kind of no rhyme or re- there's a lot of incidental rhyme and reason behind where, where things are or aren't, and there's cities that are often made of accidents rather than made of of purposeful manoeuvres, right? There, there, there's cities that that aren't necessarily there's many aspects of them that aren't designed that are that are sim- simply um, accidents, happy or otherwise, um, and, and I I think that at any one time within a city there's a potential for great things um but i don't believe those great things should be imposed on on the people that live in the city they have to kind of they have to come from the 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 people living in the city and uh, i think you can achieve a greatness um by um, you know working well uh with with um you know with the the public act of creating a city you can create great things, um, uh, and it's a little str- and a counter to that uh, story is uh, the um, the equivalent in Brisbane of Houseman's um, uh, uh, Avenues in Paris is uh, the uh, Expo '88 site at South Brisbane, which begat South Bank, which is ostensibly the, the best piece of urbanism in in any city in the Southern Hemisphere. You'd have, you know you'd have to say that's sitting on the city beach, weirdly. Uh, in a in uh, in your best bikini, looking at the at the city, um, and you're barely 400 metres from the from the uh, tallest buildings in town. It's kind of a weird weird phenomena, um, but that came from a scar made in the city uh, and an urban renewal strategy that was born about, um, you know, by that moment of history. So I think I think that notion of um, renewal is important and, and many of our brownfield sites that that move into uh, moments of where they're you know the the building form and the uses and the, and the things that are being attracted um, are, are considered more of a scar than a positive contribution to the city um, those places become places where we can intervene and do positive things um, I, I think I think that process is a bit more positive than um, a, a sort of uh, egotistical hand on the city that says, I, I understand there's a whole bunch of people living here, but nonetheless, I'm going to just blast through your suburb and, and deliver something. We do have those moments, usually delivering things like the highways and, and railways historically, and they have created some pain and some scars in, in the city. Um, and we sometimes get them right and we sometimes don't get them right. Um, uh, uh, but I, I don't, I'm not a big, I'm not a believer in. Um, a, a kind of uh, egotistical hand on the tiller forcing a particular vision upon the population of a city I, I think that time has passed and cities moving forward really have to be about um you know a, um, ad advocacy bringing people around an idea 
all agreeing that this city, our city, is the city that we want to um, build into the city of our dreams. And that's a thing that it, where we have to give permission to for all of the people to ask for the city that they want and um, try very hard to balance all of those competing requirements to actually de deliver the city that's best for everybody. I mean, cities, I use cities a lot when I'm talking about things, but actually city making is a really fundamentally basic thing that we do every day. If you go down to Bondi in Sydney, you will see a city made and unmade every day. So every day, everyone comes down, they put their towels out with due deference and setback from their neighbours, they orient appropriately to the solar aspect, they, they avail themselves of a view. They do many of the things that we try to do with our cities every day. And if you look down on that, you will see in the pattern of the occupation of the beach, highways, arterials, laneways, you know, you will see the pattern of streets. You will see the conurbation of the, mm. of the way that people put out their towels and brollies and, and beach increments and occupy that beach. And it all gets packed up at the end of the day and we do it again the next day. And it's actually uh, many of the qualities of how cities are made are innate within us out of our relationships that we form sustainably with our, uh, with our other humans on the planet. Have you any thoughts, we were chatting before we hit record, about how important it is to recognise that cities, public spaces belong to the public, the common space, rather than they belong exactly. to the council or the government or something like that. Um, how can you, how can people express what they want from their city? Well, absolutely. And I think um, the example we were talking about was this idea of people using the, um, the verge of footpath at the front of their houses yeah. um, as an extension of their garden. And, and the example I was talking about was this notion, in a, you know, I live in a, a sleepy bayside suburb in the north of Brisbane and um, it has um, some very old houses here and, some, um, and blessed with some very generously dimensioned streets. And, and here it's quite common for people to build part of their garden on the other side of the fence. And as I explain to people that when you put your garden on the public side of the fence, that's your first foray into the public realm. And the public realm is a thing that's weird for people to kind of understand, right? They sort of think on the other side of my fence is, is, is the, a place that, is owned by others it's controlled by councils it's controlled by governments and that's it, it's not mine and doesn't belong to me but of course the public realm is is the commonwealth it's 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 part of the city that when you track back up through the responsibility train um ultimately is owned by all the people and 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 so it, it truly is um a place where you can say well it's actually it's 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 mine as much as it is anybody's and i'm going to go out and make a positive contribution in my space and that's people's first foray into the public realm and i very much think that this notion of um of realizing that people can actually um you know participate uh, with intention in their city that their that their city belongs to them and that they can go out and actually ask for the city of their dreams they can go out and positively contribute to what the city might become through some of the things that they might do and that's where you get this kind of ground up urban um activities this this urban guerrilla um, um warfare that happens in cities where people are claiming spaces and turning them creatively into new things despite what um uh, the city's um, bylaws and mandates might ask for so i <clears throat> i think that that's a i think that's a really positive thing and uh, and if you expand that idea, um, and there's been various initiatives around sit in cities around the world, and Parking Day is a good example, um, where people go out and annex a car park for a day and turn it into a 
garden or a cafe, impromptu cafe or oh. a, um, art, uh, art gallery or, or any, any one of a number of various kind of interventions. Um, and they pay the parking meter and they, they, it's their right to kind of turn that space into whatever they like is, is a lovely idea about um, um, cre- creatively taking back the city for a, for a um, creative outlet. I haven't heard of that. So you, you basically find a parking spot and buy it for a day, you pay the, and then do yeah. something with it that's not park a car. Is that, is that what you're saying? Oh, yeah, parking day is a big deal. <laughs> well, it's a big deal for architects. Um, and I think that um, people... Um, love the frivolity of it so to to come along and and of course you know architects can't help themselves they're going to think about it and be witty and <laughs> and uh, uh you know they'll they will um um you know draw your attention through their intervention to things that they think are important you know the um, global warming or um the, you know the carbon footprint of a city and what have you there's all sorts of very very clever things but yes google parking day it's a it's a global phenomenon right. and it's, it's um it's it's huge and, and it's um and it has a place in Brisbane as well. Um, and Peter, you're you just in sort of that thing about reclaiming. You know, you for years have been sort of working on the fringes of a project um, called the it's a troll habitat about reclaiming the spaces under disused uh, disused spaces under freeways and things like that. Yeah, yeah, that's a tough one. That one you talk you talk about having to get a few stakeholders gathered around an idea. My goodness, look, that was an idea when I left university. There was a there was a. Um, well, it's a really interesting idea, right? So, troll, troll habitat's a really interesting idea. We, we, we all understand what trolls are. You know, the lessons taught to us as kids about the three Billy Goats gruff travelling over a bridge, and underneath the bridge lived the troll. And, and very much in cities, when we make an over the top, we completely forget about the space we make underneath. And for when I graduated from um, university, there was a there was a there's a, a wonderful piece of troll habitat in in the CBD where back in the 60s we imported an American uh, to come out and try to tell us how to be a big city in the late 60s and um, the Wilbur Smith plan was born for Brisbane which saw a bunch of freeways to to turn us into a big city a bunch of freeways to be delivered um, uh, along our much loved river edges. So now in the in the city of Brisbane, when you're at South Bank and you look, you look across to the city, you see a whole bunch of freeways between you and, and, and uh, the meaningful part of the city. And that's a remnant of the first stage of the Wilbur Smith plan. And the joke was, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a really lovely story, but um, the, um, the joke was that at the time, um, the premier of the day, um, a famous architect was visiting the city and the premier of the day with his arm around him was sweepingly showing him the all of the cranes building the Riverside Expressway uh, um, in front of the city, between the city and the river. And the architect was said to have turned to the Premier of the day and said, ah, yes, we're tearing down our freeways as well. <laughs> um, but of course we weren't tearing them down, we were, we were building them, which was, really, which was really strange. And when I graduated from uni, the, 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 um, the thing that I found kind of quite profound, there was a, a very unfortunate death underneath the Riverside Expressway in the city where a gang had decided this was a path where cyclists would kind of scurry along the river edge underneath in this very dire place underneath the Riverside Expressway um, to drive to ride their bikes up to QUT. And um, this, this gang had decided its initiation would involve standing behind one of these columns and listening for a cyclist to come by and stepping out. Mm-hmm. Coat hangering them off the off their bicycle and beating them up, and that would be their initiation into the gang. And in one particularly uh, fervent uh, initiation, a poor chap got beaten unconscious, and 
kind of kicked into the river at high tide and of course died and the, and that, which was a terrible story it's a very it's a very, it's an awful story but the thing that i found profound about it was that there was a hue and cry about how bad gangs were and how nasty people are and all that sort of stuff they completely missed the point the point was we had built a piece of the city that literally kills people and there was no there was no identification of what the actual problem was um and and I, and that frustrated me I did. I did um, some work on on looking at that part of the city as as part of the work I did in my final year at university, and then as I came out into the professions, um, the there was a thing forming in Queensland, which was the Urban Design Alliance, and I was invited to kind of participate in that. And I duly came to meetings with a bunch of um, very well educated, super smart, middle aged, uh, um, um, ostensibly white males sitting around the boardroom <laughs> table, and I just kind of uh, raised the point that we really need to do something positive. And so we started, um, uh, we ran a workshop on the Riverside Expressway and raced off and got a bit of money from some major stakeholders and, and ha had a fantastic three-day workshop with some leading minds brought in from around the nation and, uh, and, and we effectively stirred the government into action to try and deal with that um, space, which they magnificently failed to do. <laughs> uh, um, and, but, but in more recent times with some of the um, work that's been happening in the city, they're starting to intervene in that space and sort it out a little bit. But the, um, the big, the, the elephant in the room, which is the Riverside Expressway, of course, remains. And, and, and strangely, that there's another part of the city um, where they have proceeded to build a lot more of that infrastructure. Um, in fact, there's a, you know, a thing that the engineers nicknamed the Vomitron, which is a confluence of all manner of spaghetti roads and, and flyovers in the north of the city at Bowen Hills, um, creates amidst a 20 hectare footprint of that infrastructure. Ima imagine handing that much of your city over to the prioritised prioritized movements of private cars these days. <laughs> uh, amidst all of that footprint, there's nine hectares of trial habitat which no one really knows what to do with right so it's a real it remains a really interesting space and there's great initiatives i think left under is a an initiative with the carhill expressway in melbourne where they're, they're looking at um at, at taking advantage of the space made underneath this very large piece of infrastructure um, so that somebody's actually thinking about it that's a really great initiative if you go over to london you'll go to the portobello markets and of course the portobello markets sit under the westerway freeway which blasted its way through some very nice 19th century tenement housing thank yeah. you very much and was the cause of a lot of protests and, and public outrage in the late 70s um but that space underneath those freeways the um the westway trust was formed and they um, only a couple of years ago got handed tenure over the troll habitat for that for that project so it's a very interesting part of the city and we're not thinking creatively enough about um that part of our city uh, and it's a bit of a bellwether for um, ground-up urbanism to kind of um, demonstrate how those um, opportunities can be made large and valuable to the great delight of the people who live in their cities. I was hoping you were going to talk about the Garden Expressway here in Sydney, which I think is a, just a monstrosity. It's, it's a classic example of a... Did you mean Sydney? Okay. Oh, sorry. No, I did say Kyle. The Carl Expressway in, in Sydney is... Well, it's much more complex, right? So the 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 um, one in Sydney is much more complex. You, you you've had design competitions about that in the past. <laughs> I'm trying to sort out that little gem, but um, uh, by evidence of the fact that almost nothing's happened, uh, that that will that will help you understand how difficult it is to work yeah. in a large scale in in the major cities around Australia, and how many awfulizers are hard at work ensuring that nothing beautiful will happen. 
I love Michael because Michael Lennig, National Cook, beyond the fact that he's a, a yes. living, a living um, um, national treasure, um, th- that he loves to take the knives out on architects and mm. uh, uh, and in his um, accolades to uh, uh, to an architect who received a, a gold medal um, some some years back um, in his. Um, in his uh, the words that of support that he wrote for that for that uh, um, medal to be awarded, he uh, didn't miss the opportunity to take the knives out on the architect, suggesting in fact that some architects should have their creations broken into pieces <laughs> and be forced to eat them as a punishment for creating such horrific things. <laughs> Do you have any advice for? I mean, we talk a lot about creativity in business. I wonder if you've had an experience of design and or architecture for business. Well, I'm thinking that we're very familiar with that, the public spaces and making them great places to use and or enjoy. Business tends to work in a very, I would say, very much more tight framework. You basically put desks in rows and you surround them by grey partitions and maybe a window. It's, it's, it's a very... Um, Uncreative aspect of architecture. It's not, not anymore, mate. I mean, it's, we, we've just come through one of the, the greatest renaissances in the in the working environment, certainly in my living memory. Um, you know, COVID's taught us that That's we can point, yeah. work anywhere. Um, and I think we've had a, 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 a quantum leap in the flexibility of our working environments. And prior to that, you know, we had. It was all about um, ABW, you know, agile, um, you know, the agile workplaces where you would come in, you wouldn't actually have a desk, you'd put all your yeah. stuff in your locker, go find yes. a desk, work there that day or, or a lounge chair or a beanbag or whatever. And and it was a lot of those working innovations were embraced by the tech startup companies. And of course, yes. you know, the, now it's become a, a kind of cliche that comedians love to, um, love to uh, uh, highlight to our great uh, mirth and delight uh, about how frivolous and, and silly those spaces are. Uh, and it's not a panacea. Uh, I think what we witness is what what we're experiencing in our practice is okay. you know we have a nine day fortnight with an optional work from home day. Um, you know people can pretty yeah. much do whatever they want so long as the work gets done. Um, and you know there's times when we need to work in team environments and there's times when we need to go and be alone and have our head down and focused on a task. So again, it's the kind of and conversation about many of these things. I, I think that um, I think that creativity. Uh, um, is a, is a you know the creative process is a thing that businesses are realizing the value of in almost every aspect of the way that people do business, and because ironically uh, you know and um, uh, not so much myself but many of my friends have extremely creative accountants apparently who are very good with numbers find opportunities for all sorts of creativity. The the you know, I think that that notion about having environments that encourage the thing many of the processes and things that we attribute to the creative process bear fruit in lots of different ways um and we see that now with more uh, a more creative approach to the working environments that we ask people to spend a lot of their time in as well as the flexibility for mm. tools i mean here we are having having a moment and, and uh, you're you're nicely ensconced in your creative environments and i'm able to sit at home and and have a, a moment of peaceful contemplation, um, look at, looking out <laughs> over the many unfinished jobs in my backyard. Um, I, I think that there's a, a, um, a an innate flexibility to a lot of the way that business constructs itself now. And strangely, um, 
well, not strangely, actually. There's a lot, a lot of people whose job it is to kind of analyse all of that and then turn around and tell you, you know, what productivity gains you're likely to have. And, you know, the the, the, the Kinsey Group um, in, in the first year of COVID were pointing to an idea that businesses would be able to yeah. reduce their floor area by 30% on the basis of the increase of work from home. Um, so, if, you know, if you're, in, if you're just on the maths, the simple maths, if you've got a bunch of people working for you and everyone's allowed to have one work from home day, that's 20% yeah. of your team at any one time who's not in the office. Um, and that's material difference to, to some workplaces. Uh, it, it's complex and I think we're still working our way through that. But just as we're getting better at realising we have to balance people's lives with their responsibility at work, with, with very practical things like maternity and paternity leave, um, I think that we're... Um, we, we will commensurately get better at realising that we that sometimes there's better productivity about letting people be alone in an environment with their thoughts yeah. to come back to the table with some great thinking. And equally, um, there's some really high energy moments where we come together as a group, we charge each other up and, and we, we um, you know, are, are throwing things at the wall and seeing which ones stick. And there's a kind of wonderful creative frisson by being together which is which um, plays on it on that deep human energy um the phenomenology of being a human being is always is of course a fundamentally social thing yeah. so i think it's going it's a bit of a mix of those things moving forward and i, I think the more experiments we see in that space the, the more fruit is will be born not less i hope in the future less out of necessity by trying to keep us apart so we don't all spread a, uh, a virulent um, disease amongst the community and more about um, investigating where productivity lies Peter, um, unfortunately, it's time for us to bring our collective frisson uh, to a close. Oh uh, that went quick. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so we could have, I'm sure, gone all day. So, um, Peter, thanks for your yeah. thanks for time. We didn't even get a chance to talk about your uh, career as a professional basketballer. Uh, you know, karate, <laughs> Fly uh, fisherman, visual communicator. There's so many things we haven't touched on. Uh, and fly fishermen yeah. uh, so uh, but Peter look thank you it's always great to catch up and it's been incredibly insightful about this sort of application of creativity into the city of our dreams thank you very much and I'd uh, commend you both on continuing to be a medium for um, growing a conversation about the importance of creativity it is in itself a creative act thank you <laughs> thank you Peter a great pleasure to chat to you really appreciate your time What a great conversation, and Chris, I've been the privilege of having many such conversations with Peter about design and, and life and, and cities. I feel inspired to get much more involved in the way the spaces around me are, are built. It's basically he's saying everywhere, it's up to everyone to get involved. Um, I already have a veggie patch that's spilled out into the nature strip. I'm trying to think what I can do next around me to kind of to deliver against Grand Up Earth. Well, I think you can go to Bondi and uh, be disruptive. And uh, <laughs> start encroaching on the on the public uh, urban space uh, yes. as the city grows. But I, I got to say, I've never heard that a metaphor or analogy from him before, and it is incredible. I, I got a Noosa, and it's it is like a, a popular city. It's, it's a village yes. every day, and it gets remade. Mind you, there's hardly any umbrellas now. They're all cool cabanas, uh, which is an amazing invention. Another guy that invented that, Chris, we might get him on, actually. It's a good... Oh, that's uh, very... Because it's uh, changed the nature in, in my local beach. Uh, there's now controversy. Do they take up too much space? You know, how much space can you stake uh, out on your crowded beach? Um, anyway, obviously, we... 
Paul and I are now inspired to talk about a whole new bunch of different aspects of urban spaces. Uh, if you're listening to this, I hope you're inspired too. We'd love it if you could leave a rating for the podcast, hopefully a five out of five rating. If you do that, it really helps us spread the message and get more people listening to the, uh, the ideas about creativity in the workplace. Uh, do leave your comments. We'd love to hear your feedback. Um, and we hope to hear you next week. Yes. Please join us again next week and thanks for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in.